I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're also going to be talking about what's going on in the courthouses all across the country with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial already underway, as well as the trial involving the killing of Ahmad Aubrey, Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan are on trial in Georgia. We're going to talk a little bit about Veterans Day as uh, the country took time out this week to celebrate and commemorate all of our veterans across the country. And then later on in the pod, Autumn and I get to sit down with two wonderful scholars and leaders who are really looking forward to the Festival of Faiths in Louisville, Kentucky next week. Autumn and I sat down with Sarah Riggs-Reed, who is the director for Center of Interfaith Relations in Louisville, and Dr. Lewis Brogdon, who is an associate professor of preaching and black church studies, and the director of the Institute of Black Church Studies at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And it is a insightful and inspiring interview that you want to stay tuned for. Hey, Autumn, guess what time of year it is? Halloween. No. Thanksgiving? No. It's too early for Christmas. People keep telling me. It is a little too early for Christmas. No, it's the time of year when nonprofits ask for money. You know, Mitch, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it is an exciting time of year because even here at Good Faith Media, we need to, from time to time, ask our listeners and readers to help support this great effort of keeping this message alive. Yeah, the voices of inclusive people of faith are tragically underrepresented, leaving many feeling alone. And then we layered in this global pandemic, which pushed all of us further into isolation. But Good Faith Media provides a space for our voices to unite and impact the world for good. And our daily news and opinion pieces provide thoughtful reflection from spiritual and thoughtful leaders around the world. Our Nurturing Faith Journal is a print magazine that circulates six times a year to churches and households nationwide delivering thoughtful analysis, inspiring features, and Jesus-focused Bible study curriculum. And if you like this podcast, Good Faith Weekly, make certain to subscribe to more exciting and challenging podcasts brought to you by the Good Faith Media Podcast Network. Gather around your device as GFM continues advocating for inclusion for all, justice for all, and freedom for all. You can find more information about this at goodfaithmedia.org forward slash donate. Autumn, how in the world are you doing in this beautiful time of the year? Mitch, both my boys are vaccinated. Oh, wow. That's exciting. They've got the I jab. Know. Did they use a, did. a smaller needle? What they, how, how did it go? So I took them individually because I know my boys in shots, and it's not because they're anti-COVID vax. They just don't like pokes is what they call them. <laughs> right. So I took them separately, and it was wonderful. Honestly, we live in a college town, and uh, we ran into several college students and older folks um, in the store while we waited our 15 minutes after their shot um, just to make sure they didn't have a reaction. They didn't. And uh, people were really kind. Um, bent down and told them how brave they were. One lady had like tears in her eyes and oh, she was like, awesome. I just am so glad you guys are safe and thank you for getting your shot. And it was, it was, I was more emotional about it than I thought I would be. I wasn't really expecting oh, the emotions I just, I can't that imagine. came with it. So I got a couple yeah. of follow up questions to this because obviously my wife and I have adult children now. And so we've kind of been living vicariously through you and Josh and your family as a family who has been 
really looking forward to this moment when the vaccine was available to your children. So let's talk about that for just a second regarding just kind of the, you talked about what a great experience the the moment was. What are you hearing among your family groups? Uh, are people really excited about getting their children vaccinated? Um, how are the kids handling it? Because I know that you've posted a couple of things about your kids actually talking to other kids about the vaccine. Yeah, they have. Um, my kids from day one have known sort of the implications of the virus. We have conveyed to them the severity of COVID so that they would wear their masks and not accost strangers on the golf course when we were in the early stages. Of this <laughs> I may, I may have seen uh, one or two times your kids yelling at golfers, stay away, stay away. Unclean, <laughs> unclean. Yes. So, I mean, we've been really honest with our kids about it in a developmentally appropriate way when 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 we could handle it, right? Sure. So they've been looking forward to this day um, because it means that they can be safe and protected from the worst that COVID has to offer to us as humans. And they've been uh, waiting to be able to be more normal, I guess, you know, with their friends. They really want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. And that is an indoor place that we have not been since COVID. But, and you know, so, I, I heard a rumor here in Norman that uh, maybe a parent or two have have suggested that Chuck E. Cheese may not be open until after the vaccination was distributed well, to kids. Listen, somebody started that rumor that the machines just weren't working until you had your vaccine. And since our kids didn't oh. have it yet, they can't go. Right. right. So we are planning a trip there. But yes, they have been really encouraging. We have several friends who were signed up later in the week than we were. We went on Sunday and um, our boys have FaceTimed with their friends who are getting, getting the jab later that day and have encouraged them. They both said it hurt less than the flu shot. Oh, awesome. And they did, they did not have a sore arm. They did not run fever. They did not have a headache or a tummy ache. They, and my boys would have told me, like, they love to complain about ailments. And so we would have needed Band-Aid if they had any issues, but not at all. And they just feel really excited that they're protecting their little sister who can't get the vaccine yet and others who aren't able to get it because of medical issues. That is fantastic. Well, it sounds like a lot of positive uh, vibes uh, around this vaccine in your neck of the woods. But yeah. it all hasn't been that rosy because you posted uh, on social media about the kids getting their vaccine, and we were all thrilled that they were able to do so. But there were a few who attacked you for it, right? Oh, of course. Of course, <laughs> because I... You know, I try to stay friends with everybody unless you're saying something just grotesquely horrible, like I will unfollow you. Um, but I keep a lot of voices in my in my social media. And because of that, I think maybe I was one of the few in their social media feed who was vaccinating my child. And so it was um, someone told me that I was I, I just interviewed the boys as they got off the bus and came in, came in the house after the day after their vaccine. How are you guys feeling 24 hours after? And just got their responses. And I was told that that was. Um, being um, rude and inconsiderate to the people, to the many, many children who have died from the vaccine and had adverse reactions, which I don't know of any. So I just wasn't going to really argue science. I just sure. said, you know, don't just don't watch my videos. You know, right. COVID has killed 700,000 people in this country and the vaccine is preventing death and hospitalization to an amazing degree. And so we've chosen to vaccinate our kids. You know, one of the things that I find inspirational about these kids getting the vaccination over the last couple of weeks has been 
has been able to see the photos of your kids and other kids getting the vaccine and then thinking back to the 1950s when the polio vaccine was rolled out and all these kids rolling up their sleeves to do their part. I think the two are equivalent. I mean, it just really is because we still, while we know so much more about COVID-19 than we did two years ago, we're still learning its long-term implications. And so the ability to try to eradicate it and fight it right now is very similar to what happened in the 1950s with polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking, uh, you know, if if the political climate was as it is today back in 1950, would we have ever eradicated polio? And the truth is probably not because probably there are not. people who just absolutely deny science, who have no rationality about them at, at all. And it just it just drives me crazy. Case in point, Aaron Rodgers from the Green Bay Packers. Bless. I mean, Bless. good night. Felt so compelled that he needed to lie about being immunized. Uh, and uh, 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 I'm vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> so right. Uh, Have you been immunized against COVID nineteen? Uh, I'm vaccinated. Yeah. Just I can't, slippery. I can't wait to see you know what happens this Sunday when his lineman may accidentally let that defensive lineman through because he's put all of them in jeopardy in that little huddle breathing on them. So mm-hmm. uh, with his so, COVID breath, exactly. that's what we call it in our house. <laughs> the COVID people, breath. People who choose not to be vaccinated sometimes have COVID breath. So well, it, and here's the other thing, Mitch. I read a story this morning from NPR saying that you know we've all kind of heard like COVID's not going away, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is no, not, not just going to disappear, go away, and that there is a um, a really large percentage of white-tailed deer in the in the U.S. who are carriers of and who have COVID and who are able to spread COVID. So, I mean, this is going to have implications. Can they spread it to livestock that mm-hmm. we're around and eating? I don't. I don't know. Like, no one really knows how this is going to play out. But it's not going anywhere. No. So, if we could all just get vaccinated, we could really protect ourselves from this thing that is not going away. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that uh, COVID has certainly had an influence on, and that is the economy. Uh, reports uh, last week indicated that inflation is at an all-time high. Uh, prices are going through the roof on everyday items. Uh, people, you know, parents uh, looking for that latest Christmas gift are worried that uh, it's even going to get here because of supply issues. Um, are you finding it? Uh, are you are you finding costs going up in your household? Yeah, I mean, I think prices are definitely going up. I'm the grocery shopper in our house, and I've seen, you know, protein is definitely higher. Uh, Fresh fruits and vegetables, especially if you want organic, seem to be a lot higher. And, you know, I'm thankful that we're in a position where it's not, you know, it's not really hurting our family. But I know there are a lot of families that are looking at, you know, Thanksgiving dinner and wondering how that's going to happen. Well, yeah, I know it's a, a big issue. I've, I've been listening to uh, news reports all week and the conversation about it, uh, talking about uh, supply issues, uh, labor issues. And I want to add my two cents uh, in on this conversation because you hear a lot, of, uh, a lot of rhetoric about people are lazy and they're not going back to work. Uh, we should have given, you know, given out so many, uh, in their words, hands, handouts during the pandemic, uh, blah, 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 blah. Notice it's not a handout when billionaires get a exactly. from the government. Yeah, exactly. I'm just saying. You're absolutely right. Never said right. But I want to take it in a different direction. Instead of analyzing everything that's happened in the last two years, which we can analyze it to death, and there are going to be historians that write. The, the 
make their careers out of analyzing uh, the pandemic years. Instead of really focusing in on what got us to this point, what if we looked at this as an opportunity to revision our economy? Because what I think is happening is a lot of people are really starting to uh, reflect upon the jobs that they were in pre-pandemic, uh, the careers that they had chosen. And I think there's been a lot of inflection, reflection that is taking place within the pandemic, or pandemic years that are now starting to play out in this emerging economy that we really don't know what persists in the future. And so while I know it's frustrating and, and what I keep hearing is, that, you know, nobody's in the restaurants, nobody's, you know, there to help me. Well, that may be the new reality and you may just have to get over it. And there's not going to be somebody there at your beck and call at a restaurant or at your beck and call to help you find the size shirts you need in a department store. The new reality may be a new economy. And so what if we look to the future and say, you know, there was a lot of great things about this old economy, but in this two-year pause, what if we could make things better? What if we could create a new economy that would benefit everybody from the top tier to the bottom tier, especially in the bottom tier uh, mm-hmm. of the economy, and really start working towards justice and equitable opportunity for all people? A living wage. A living wage. But why don't, why don't we just reimagine things? Because I think that there are a lot of incredible people out there that are rethinking industry and rethinking supply lines and rethinking how we've done everything in the past. And so I am not despondent. I'm not discouraged about where we are. I think this is an opportunity. It's going to, it's going to get hard. And I think it's going to get harder in the future. But I think in the next two to three years, we're going to see a boom in creativity, in technology, and business, because I still believe in the American spirit. I still believe in the ingenuity of individuals and the passion of individuals. I'm just, I'm really excited about the future, but I do think it's it's going to be difficult because we're wanting to rush back to what we determined as normalcy. And maybe we shouldn't rush back. Let's rush forward into what the new future lies. I love that. Rush forward. That's so good. Yeah. So there was my soapbox. I apologize. That was my two cents. May have been more than two cents. Let me kick that soapbox back out so we can talk. I was going to trip over. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, and something that, I mean, I know I'm just zoomed into our house and our family, but something I've always been really concerned about, I have two daughters, is how they can pick a career and a career path that would allow them to be moms and I and my boys that, that they could pick a career path that would allow them to be dads and I've talked through my daughter's 14 and we've talked through like okay that would be a really hard job mm-hmm. to be able to have a life work balance and I think that is something that I'm an elder millennial let me get my shawl gathered around my shoulders <laughs> um, but that's something that millennials and gen z are thinking about as they choose careers and as they go in and start being educated in fields that that can be more flexible. Mm -hmm. And so instead of closing our eyes as tight as we can and hoping for what used to be, we've got to open them up and plan for the future. And it's going to take all of us. You're absolutely right. I love that. I love that. Well, before we get into our interview, uh, there's some other things going on in the country that I think we would be amiss not to mention. And that are the two 
Very important cases that uh, stem from the summer of 2021 was the killing mm. of Ab, uh, Ahmad Aubrey down in Georgia. George McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan are on trial for uh, his killing, uh, the killing of Ahmad Aubrey. And then in Wisconsin, we've got the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who killed two individuals and injuring a third. Um, you know, there's a lot to say about this. Uh, I don't you know, I think we'll have a lot more to say about it after the trials are concluded. But, you know, one of the things that I have noticed in both trials is that systemic racism, Autumn, still persists. You look at the choosing of the Aubrey trial or the, the trial mm-hmm. involving the killing of uh, Ahmad Aubrey, 11 white jurors and, you know, one African-American juror. <sighs> Just the whole system in itself and the ability to strike witnesses based upon their race, if you don't like their answers, um, you know, it, it just seems to be really prevalent that the system remains broken. Now, I don't know if these three individuals are going to be found guilty or innocent. I have not been following that trial as much as I have the Rittenhouse uh, trial, but not- noting the, the reality that it seems as though that it would be a different situation um, if the tide was turned. Mm-hmm. If you inverted that jury. Yeah, if you in- inverted yeah. that jury. And so, you know, is, is this really a, a trial? Uh, are you being tried by your peers or are you being tried by people who look like you, vote like you, and sound mm-hmm. like you? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in the uh, case of M- M- Michael Brothers and Brian, it seems as though they're getting tried by people who, who look and sound like them. Mm-hmm. And then in the Rittenhouse case, uh, boy, that was just a, I don't really know how to explain yesterday's hearing uh, as the prosecution or as the defense began to make their case, uh, the prosecution, they, or the defense actually brought uh, Kyle Rittenhouse to the stand. Uh, I was really surprised by that decision. I was really surprised. They brought him on the stand. But if you watch the testimony, he was pretty pretty compelling as far as a witness is concerned. Now, I don't know about the facts and the details, but if you watched him give his testimony, he was a compelling witness. So I'm assuming that the defense lawyers felt like this was a safe a safe bet to, to put him on trial, which I was I was surprised as well. But they did it. But then when, when the prosecution did cross-examination, the judge stopped the testimony and, or the questioning and sent the jury out and then just tongue-lashed the prosecutor. I had never seen that uh, in an open court like that before. And it was, I mean, it was a tongue-lashing about trying to, to enter evidence that he had already ruled on. And so it was, it was quite an ordeal. So again, it's going to be interesting to see how this trial uh, unfolds. But the bottom line, let's look at this thing from a, a, a 20,000, 30,000 foot view, is that the reality is the system remains broken. Mm-hmm. The narrative of the Rittenhouse, of the Rittenhouse case is the kid went to look for trouble. I mean, he just he took an AR-15. You know, he wasn't defending his home. He was going to go out and defend his ideals, the ideas that, that he believed in. And yeah, there were skirmishes and there were confrontations, and I get that. But he put himself in a position where he was there to cause trouble. And that's just the reality of the, the overarching narrative. And in the Aubrey case, uh, these three guys... Well, and here's the thing. Yep. If Kyle Rittenhouse had been a different... Um, 
skin color, he wouldn't have been there Again. to talk in the courtroom. Yeah. He wouldn't have been there. He would not have survived that event. But right. because of the privilege of his skin color, he is. And yeah. he lives to fight another day. And it's ridiculous. Yeah, Can you imagine a 17-year-old African-American young man walking the streets with an AR-15? Um, they can't even walk the streets without an AR-15, Mitch. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, it just, it just it exposes the hypocrisy of the American judicial system. And, um, and so I... I, I'm just, I'm really discouraged. We'll see how these trials turned out or turn out uh, probably by next week, but uh, I don't have much hope for him to be honest with you. No. So, well, there are some people that we talked to who are trying to make a difference and trying to flip that narrative. And our colleagues, Starlet Thomas and myself, are going to be heading to Louisville, Kentucky next week for the 25th. Festival of Faiths, and in this particular festival, they are going to be focusing in on sacred change, essential conversations on faith and race, and so we're really looking forward to being there at the festival. Autumn and I sat down this week with the director for the Center of Interfaith Relations, who is hosting the festival, Sarah Riggs-Reed, and one of its presenters, Dr. Lewis Brogdon, who is a professor at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and it was a delightful conversation, and I just have all the utmost respect for these two individuals and everybody who's going to be at the festival. And we'll have some, uh, hopefully, some cuts next week uh, on next week's podcast from the festival about uh, what's going on there. So stay tuned for this interview. It is one you won't want to miss. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, director of the Raceless Gospel Initiative at Good Faith Media and host of the Raceless Gospel Podcast. The Advent season is coming. And we're delivering a podcast, Jesus is Coming. It's an Advent podcast series from us at Good Faith Media. We'll drop four episodes, one for each Sunday of Advent. A season of preparation for a kingdom that is coming back up. Give everyone some space. There is plenty good room. Come one, come all, to Jesus. Jesus is Coming an Advent podcast series by me, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got some very special guests with us. Good Faith Media will be attending the 25th Festival of Faith next week in Louisville, Kentucky. The event will focus on sacred change, essential conversations on faith and race. We are fortunate to have the director of the Center for Interfaith Relations, who is hosting the conference, and one of the conference participants, Sarah Riggs-Reed, joined the Center for Interfaith Relations in 2012 and became managing director in 2014. She has led a talented team to expand the annual Festival of Faith as a physical audience and global virtual audience. Prior to joining the center, she directed fund development, business training, and program operations and local community development efforts, concentrating both in the workforce and urban business development services. Sarah also worked in finance in Boston and Louisville. A graduate of Wesley College, Sarah received her master's in public administration from the University of Louisville. Sarah is a lifelong Episcopalian with early family experience in ecumenicism as the daughter of a missionary parent or parents in Columbia. Dr. Lewis Brogdon serves as associate professor of preaching and black church studies and director of the Institute of Black Church Studies at the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, a great partner of Good Faith Media. He has served in numerous positions in undergraduate and graduate institutions in Simmons College of Kentucky at Claflin University, 
Bluefield College and Louisville Seminary. Brogdon is the author of books such as A Companion to Fleeman, The Spirituality of Black Preaching, Hope on the Brink, and No Longer a Slave but a Brother. Brogdon delivers lectures on Martin Luther King Jr. and debates about reparations and recent protests about the death of George Floyd. He has developed academic courses on the study of Dr. King for educational institutions in Virginia and Kentucky. Both of you, Sarah, Dr. Brogdon, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad to be with you. We are really looking forward to next week. Uh, Myself, as well as Reverend Starlet Thomas, will be coming to Louisville for the festival, and we are just really, really excited. First of all, just to be in the same page. Or same space with actual people. That's exciting in itself, it but the topic itself is just going to be outstanding. Before we get to the intricate details of the conference, I know Autumn's got a question for Sarah. So Autumn, take it away. Yeah, Sarah. So let's begin with the Center for Interfaith Relations. Uh, you all are hosting the event next week, and your mission is to celebrate the diversity of faith traditions expressed gratitude for our unity and strengthen the role of faith in society through common action. Before we discuss the events of next week, tell us a little bit about the work that you all do. Well, uh, this will be our 25th annual Festival of Faiths, and um, our marquee event is uh, this festival uh, for the center, Um, and it is a forum where we can discuss timely, relevant, significant issues of the day informed by a variety of faith traditions. Um, So we lean into many of the contemplative practices, but really it is about um, the relevancy of faith um, as we show up as citizens today. And Dr. Brogdon, why are organizations like the Center so important, especially in this day and age, for the objectives of justice and peace? Well, it really keeps educational institutions from operating in silos. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's so much that's happening, uh, you know, in this current moment. And some of what we have seen unfolding across this nation is really because a lot of educational institutions and educational leaders, uh, we, we hide in the academy and we haven't really been engaging the community the way um, that we should have. Um, So even though our primary mission is to educate students and to train them and prepare them uh, to go out into our communities and do work, it's incumbent upon institutions to be doing the work themselves. And how do you do the work? It's through partnerships. And so uh, this kind of creative, uh, innovative partnership with the Center for Interfaith Relations uh, is, I'm just so excited about it. It is just so essential because you know it brings together uh, thought leaders and people who are are, are doing advocacy um, across our very religious traditions, and we are convening a conversation about uh, a very 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 uh, important issue. Uh, and so I just think partnerships between these institutions uh, and organizations like the Center for Interfaith Relations uh, they are pivotal if we are going to impact our communities and bring real change. Now, Dr. Brogdon, you bring up an excellent point, and uh, Sarah and Dr. Brogdon, this is bo- this question is both for you. It seems as though within the last several years that advocacy has 
become more prominent in our culture. Now, we know all of us who have studied history know the importance of advocacy and people out marching in the streets and demanding change, both on their local and federal levels. But it seems as though it has gained a lot of momentum recently. And I love that that image that you just painted, Dr. Brogdon, about how, um, you know, for so long, a lot of these discussions have happened in academia or in the halls of institutions, and now it seems as though these conversations are moving to the streets. Sarah, is that something that the the institute, is, the center, is really trying to advocate for? Is moving that conversation out of academia into the streets? You've you've summed it up just beautifully, uh, and. Early on in our work, we were privileged to be parts of conversations that were held in uh, universities, prestigious universities in our city and elsewhere. And uh, we would curate these sessions from hearing these conversations between thought leaders like Dr. Brogdon um, and bringing them to Main Street. Uh, so the greatest thing uh, that we have to offer is is the gift to people who are not in academic institutions, the opportunity um, to learn and grow and, and deepen understanding. Mm, I love that. And Dr. Brogdon, we, I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, I mean, how important is that the, that these conversations that have been happening in academia are now happening in the coffee shops, uh, and around the, the dinner tables, uh, across this country? Mitch, I think it's, I mean, it, it's, it's critical that we get out of, out of these silos mm. and have, um, complex and nuanced conversations about very, very important issues. Uh, and and we, you're going to need partnerships between educational institutions, uh, nonprofits, uh, even engaging people in the business and the government sector about these issues. Because the reason there is an uptick uh, in advocacy work uh, is because there are major, major social issues in this country that for too long, we keep trying to brush it under a rug. We keep trying to look the other way. Uh, and you just reach these moments, if you are a student of history, where it's just hard to ignore the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And so we are in one of these uncomfortable moments. Uh, but I've been telling people that, that God uses tension. Uh, so there's yeah, a text in, yeah. in Luke chapter 12 where... Jesus says, don't think I come to bring peace, but, but the sword. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's very interesting to hear Jesus talk about using and causing and using division uh, for God's broader and divine purposes. Dr. King talked about this same thing in the letter from a Birmingham jail, where he says he is not afraid of tension, that, that God mm -hmm. uses tension. Uh, and so people who kind of want to hush and, and calm things down, uh, you know, one of my constant retorts to them is if it was not for people um, protesting and, and kicking against the system, uh, I would still be a slave. Mm -hmm. uh, or I would be drinking out of a different water fountain. I wouldn't be able to uh, in, enjoy hotel accommodations uh, with my white sisters and brothers. And so you don't make progress by looking the other way. No. Uh, and so sometimes you, you do have to, you have to push and press. And, and we're in one of those moments but you can't deliver real change just staying in the classroom, exploring the nature of the problem. It's going to take partnerships and advocacy 
to, that brings real change. And so what we're doing with this festival, yes, it's going to be conversations that are very nuanced, very sophisticated, man, complex, but we're going to make it plain. Yeah. And the point is going to be that then people leave the festival uh, with things they can do in their community. Excellent. I love that. Our colleague and friend, Starlet Thomas, who you will both get to meet next week, um, or two weeks. The festival's in two weeks. Is that right? It's the 18th. Yeah, it's next week. Nine days. days. Sarah's like, I have a countdown. I know how long. There's a countdown uh, at the website at uh, festivalforfaith.org. I can see it. Nine days, four hours, 37 minutes, and now zero seconds. (laughs) Starlet likes to say, uh, I like to feed the elephants in the room. And so it was really interesting that you said that. I just spent a long weekend with her. so uh, That's awesome. I love yeah. that. Oh, she's a spitfire. Get ready. <laughs> um, so next week, the conference will focus on faith and race. And the location for the event is really interesting. In 2020, Brianna Taylor was murdered by the Louisville Police Department when they issued a no-knock warrant looking for another person. Sarah, why is it so important for the event to be held in Louisville? So many um, ways to answer that question. Um, uh, In the aftermath of the Breonna Taylor um, shooting, I think all organizations were having a moment of personal reckoning and uh, issuing statements of um, uh, support, um, uh, commitment and direction going forward. we have enjoyed a very long legacy of working in the interfaith community and celebrating diversity. But when it came down to the time of our city having to announce uh, the decision on whether or not the police were going to be prosecuted, um, uh, we tried to join together as a whole community in prayer. And I uh, remember having a conversation uh, with uh, a black pastor that I admire very much who represents an a coalition of ministers, um, could we all come together for this prayer event? And the answer back was, um, we don't really know each other. You know, the time to come together in solidarity is based on relationships that have been built over time. And um, not that there hadn't been outreach, it just wasn't meaningful outreach. Um, And uh, so that was a real wake up call, um, you know, for us uh, to to start the work of real relationship building um, and having the the difficult uh, conversations, doing the reckoning uh, publicly where appropriate. Uh, So um, and organizations like that are are doing the same kind of activity all over our city. You know, we're seeing our Metro United Way and the Center for Nonprofit Excellence. We're not alone in this this work, but um, yeah, I think the Breonna Taylor uh, situation was our version of an Emmett Tell experience, Mm. you know, where we had to recognize in a moment that um, things were not quite uh, what we had gotten, we'd gotten complacent (laughs) and not quite what we thought they were. Right. You know, um, Dr. Brogdon, over the last year or so, uh, since 2020, uh, Good Faith Media have gone to some of these sacred places where this deep trauma has uh, inflicted itself upon the, these communities. We've been in Ferguson, uh, Missouri. We have been 
uh, in Tulsa last year commemorating the 100th anniversary of the race massacre there in Tulsa. And in each one of these locations that we visit, it is very impressed upon us the depths in which systemic racism have been ingrained into our culture. I love the two focuses of the conference, one about systemic racism, but also about the spirituality of healing from trauma and oppression. And we're going to talk about the latter here in just a second, but I first want to focus in on the issues of systemic racism. For our listeners, Dr. Brogdon, there is a lot of talk about systemic racism I believe in it. I've seen it uh, inflicted upon communities with my own eyes. But what are some of the more important issues that you want our audience to know about systemic racism in the United States? That's a great question. And one of the most difficult aspects of doing advocacy work um, that addresses issues of race and racism is the profound sense of confusion about what racism is. So I wrote an an article in a magazine last year uh, that entitled, Why We Talk Past Each Other When It Comes to Racism. And one reason we talk past each other is because most Americans, when they hear the word racism, they're thinking of being prejudiced against Black people. And so they see a lot of their white friends who aren't running around yelling the N-word, don't have any open animus against Blacks, and they say, well, what are you talking about? There's no racism problem. We're not, you know, Black people aren't slaves. We're, the Ku Klux Klan isn't marching up and down the street. Uh, so this is one of the reasons the Academy has failed the public square, because we haven't taught Americans to understand that when people organize themselves socially, they create systems. And when you enslave a group of people for over 240 years, uh, and you can't enslave them without the co-option of the government, the business sector, the educational institutions, religious institutions, and then how people even make sense of it in their family systems. So then after slavery, you get another 100 years, Black Coats, Jim Crow segregation. Uh, And it just forms the foundation of our way of life in this country, and just because we ratified the 13th Amendment doesn't mean all of these things go away when you don't understand that systems morph. So I'll give people an example of why it's important to think of racism as a system. Uh, During the exact same time uh, when Blacks were being freed from slavery, they were not given reparations. A few years later, what the federal government does, it passes what's called the Homestead Act where they give out millions of acres of land to white Americans. Uh, and, 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 and it's the federal government giving out what's called, what is a, the equivalent of a handout, okay? Giving out land to white Americans uh, so that the foundation of home ownership and wealth uh, can be, you, and, and there's actually studies to show the percentage of white homeowners today that can trace their lineage and legacy of home ownership back to a racist policy because Blacks were not allowed to be a part of the Homestead Act. That was only for white Americans. Yeah. Land that they stole, uh, so by the way, as a Muskogee uh, Creek. Uh, so la- land yes. that they stole, by the way, uh, yes, from my people, absolutely, uh, absolutely. the Muskogee Creeks. <laughs> yep, yep, you, you, you're spot on. Uh, and so what then ends up happening is you, you say, well, I didn't own slaves. No, you, you didn't. But 
you you benefited. Mm-hmm. You benefited from 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 those systems. Uh, and just because those systems aren't around, you have to pay attention to how systems morph and then explore, but what do we do about all the damage that has been done? Yeah. So the, the the Homestead Act is just one example. Uh, I mean, you can look at how, how, we, how we've done housing, uh, how we criminalized Blacks after slavery. Um, that was the, you know, you end up with what's called convict leasing, where for decades they were just arresting Blacks on crazy charges uh, and basically re-enslaving them. Uh, this was going on up into the 40s, okay, up into the 40s. Uh, so, you know, during the exact same time, you you know, you were having uh, the ugly things with Jim Crow, like uh, lynching, uh, police brutality, uh, you, you name it. Mm-hmm. So these things are still with us today, mm-hmm. uh, the, these systems. And yeah. so if people can understand prejudice is a part of the conversation, but the real part of the conversation are all these systems, like, for example, all these Ivy League institutions uh, that have all these billions of dollars in their endowment. Some of, a lot of that money can be traced back to uh, the centuries of enslavement. Uh, and so they're sitting on more money than they will ever need. But then HBCUs uh, are struggling to survive. And these are the institutions that's really educating the, the masses of Black Americans. And so, you know, it's just important to think a little broadly uh, about these issues. If we want to create change. Amen. Well, well said. Thank you for that. Very well said. So, Sarah, let's discuss a little bit spirituality and healing from trauma and oppression, because the whole time, Dr. Brogdon, you're talking, there are these giant, like, systemic issues, but there are also generations of trauma inflicted upon families because of the choices that were made. So Good Faith Media really appreciates the emphasis on healing from trauma and oppression, and we know that it's hard work. Um, So for so long, the church has spoken about seeking reconciliation. Um, Some churches have spoken (laughs) about seeking reconciliation, but for reconciliation to really come to fruition, it's, it's hard work and it has to be engaged first. Why is the emphasis on trauma and oppression so important in your in your mind, Sarah? Well, um, one thing to point out is the curation of these session titles was actually done um, by people like Dr. Brogdon. In fact, he kind of led the whole effort. We um, indicated that we very much wanted to have a festival um, and had uh, just work with some of our most preeminent theologians and thought leaders on what those sessions needed to be. And the very first one is facing the truth you know it's uh, is uh before you can get to healing and repair and reconciliation we we have to face the truth and really this is really pointed very directly to white privileged uh, americans you know is is the truth of the story here and and also not to romanticize uh this story but to really um you know, yes, we can look to Black faith experiences. They're not monolithic, but they're um, as the source of incredible music and incredible praise and and ritual. And um, but we don't, as a a race, um, honor the trauma and the pain and the uh, you know the the spiritual crisis that has been brought on by these these systems. So. Um, uh, 
one of the very first lessons that that we learned working not only with our theologians but also um, in the aftermath of the Brianna Taylor is that we can't rush to healing. That there really is a step that has to happen first, first, which is a witnessing and acknowledging, um, kind of uh, being quiet, leaning yeah. into the discomfort. Um, it, I mean, it's. I think it's a first step, and this is something that we hope we'll be having in conversation for um, years and years to and Sarah, come. Thank you so much for saying that, because you know, as our Autumn was articulating during the question, that oftentimes, especially from white faith communities, there's always this rush to reconciliation that they want to get to the forgiveness component as quickly as possible, and in doing so, they bypass what we've been calling the hard work of. Mm-hmm seeking justice, of of seeking healing from generational trauma and oppression, and trying to bring justice into that so that it leads to reconciliation. There can be no reconciliation without justice. And so thank you so much for saying that. You, you said it very well. So Dr. Broden, you are going to be leading one of these sessions entitled Black Face Encounter with Black Trauma, Pain, and Nihilism. Looking through the description of that session, I thought it was absolutely brilliantly put together because I love this emphasis on how history has somewhat romanticized the black faith experience while de-emphasizing the struggle and the reality behind that faith. As I said a moment ago, we had the honor and privilege of commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre uh, this last year. And one of the things that was prevalent when in, in that in that moment was the generational trauma and oppression that came out of that event. Yes, for those 18 hours that day in Tulsa in 1921, it was horrendous and horrible and evil. But what happened afterwards afterwards was just that evil. And so I appreciate this topic that you're going to be discussing. So tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect in your session. Well, I'm telling you, the, the, the conference is going to be great. Uh, all the sessions are going to be good, but this one is probably going to be the best session. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, uh, be, because it's a conversation about the Black faith tradition um, that's not had enough. Okay, there's so much talk about uh, the tradition that that survives and perseveres. Everyone loves singing, uh, we shall overcome, Uh, you know, someday, I I believe in my heart, we shall overcome without realizing that part of what the reason why Black faith is such a powerful resource for for African-Americans is because it has had to grapple with both, yes, the the the, the triumphs that that produces, you know, the, the Negro spirituals and the, and the freedom songs and and a leader who can stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial uh, and echo that he has a dream. I mean, we love mm-hmm. talking about that aspect of of the Black faith tradition, but but when it comes to how the faith tradition grapples with generational pain that then gets layered with with trauma and the struggle to make sense of it all, the struggle of meaning. Uh, so I, I wrote a book called Hope on the Brink, uh, Understanding the Emergence of Nihilism in Black America, where, where I interrogate uh, 
just this growing conversation among black scholars about uh, about the legacy of racism and its effect upon African Americans. And so if you're going to fight racism, it's really fought on two levels. There is the sort of external uh, systemic level, but then there's the internal work we have to do within the black community uh, because racism exacts such a toll on us. Uh, and so, man, the presenters we have, Dr. Johnny Hill, who wrote a book called Prophetic Rage, he is going to give voice and to, uh, uh, to, to talk about how Black faith encounters that, that, that pain. Uh, Sheila Wise Rose wrote a book on, uh, on, on trauma. And so she is going to, you know, we're going to wade into that, that kind of conversation. And then I'm really, really excited about uh, my presentation to, to really talk about uh, nihilism and, and the struggle uh, for meaning, that the, that the Black faith has been a resource to help fight that off. It's also been a resource to help people wade into that. Uh, and it has also struggled to help uh, Black people to make sense of all that is going on around them. And current iterations of the Black faith tradition, some that are really falling out of favor with the masses of Black Americans, is exactly because they cannot help Black people to make sense of what is going on around them. And so we have a generation, and I'm going to keep sitting around, uh, singing by and by, worrying about when they get to heaven, uh, and they see uh, uh, white Christians worshiping uh, a white God, uh, a white Jesus, while more Black Americans are in being incarcerated than, than were enslaved. They're just not going to go to church and clap and shout and be happy and, and ignore uh, uh, pain and suffering uh, and the trauma that, that we are living with. So this conversation that we are going to have, uh, it, you know, it, it's vital. It's really, really, really vital to, to, to understand, hey, if we want to affect change, we are going to need to change some laws. We're going to need some new policies. We're going to need some partnerships. But then there's going to be some deeper healing work um, that, that we must also do in tandem with some of this advocacy work uh, if, we want to, if we want to eventually experience reconciliation. So to me, the path to reconciliation, it starts with justice. We've got to do the justice work. Then there needs to be this process and this era of healing. Uh, and then after the healing, then, you know, let's have some conversations about reconciliation. But don't be talking about reconciliation while systems are in place, still disenfranchising masses of blacks, while people are still experiencing uh, suffering, pain and trauma and nihilism. Let's address these things. And I think the, the, the way will be clear for us to really live into something uh, that is beautiful. This is our third podcast in a row, podcast episode in a row, where our guests have talked about this is not the time for peace in the church. If you have peace in your church right now, it's complicit. Mm. This mm. is time for ruckus. <laughs> and, I, yep. it is, and, and it is. And I, it is echoed from the Hispanic tradition, from all kinds of traditions. And I, I just want to let you know that you are not the only one saying this. Yeah. That's good to hear. That's yeah. good to hear. You know, one of my, fa my favorite thinkers and fellow Baptist, uh, Dr. Brogdon, uh, Cornell West, often says that love is justice in the streets. And yep. it, we can talk about love, we can sing about love, but love 
is hollow and shallow if there is not justice attached to it. And so we need to be out there seeking justice because it's only through justice that we will see and discover love and reconciliation. That's the only way we can get there. So we can't bypass it. So you're exactly right. So I'm really looking forward to your session and your presentation. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you. So, Sarah, I mean, the conference now looking, let me see here. Let me check the clock. It is <laughs> nine days, four hours, 16 minutes, and 38 <laughs> seconds away. So can people still sign up for the conference? Absolutely. There are uh, there are still seats available. Um, we have had to restrict the seats this year, um, you know, out of respect for uh, health and safety and COVID protocols, um, but there are seats available in each of the sessions. Um, we also have a very robust live stream. So on our Festival of Face website, there's an opportunity to register for the live stream. We, on an annual basis, have people join us from all over the world to see what is going on in Louisville, Kentucky during the Festival of Face. Um, so there's a, there's a well-established virtual community that uh, joins us each year. And I suspect it's going to be bigger than ever this year. Wonderful. And you mentioned COVID protocols, because I did notice that part of that protocol is you do have to show your vaccination card to get into the center. Is that correct? Yes. The, you will need to show your vaccination card. And if you are um, are not vaccinated, we ask for a um negative COVID test, PCR test within 72 hours of uh, coming to the conference. The preference would be be vaccinated. Amen. Thank you so much for saying that because we're big advocates of the vaccination. So well, we're really looking forward to it. Well, Dr. Brogdon, uh, Sarah Reed, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly this, uh, this week. But before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question that she wants to ask you both. Yes, sir. We're going to start with you, and then Dr. Brogdon, we're going to give you the last word. Our tagline at Good Media is there's more to tell. So in light of the upcoming festival and everything we've discussed today, what is your more to tell? Well, the more to tell, to uh, you need to come to the festival virtually or in person uh, to, to really hear what there is. And this is the beginning of a conversation uh, that Dr. Brogdon is committed uh, to having with us for many years to come. So uh, there'll be essential conversations, next steps. And, and, and I would like to follow by, you know, just letting you know a little bit about the, uh, the Institute for Black Church Studies that I direct uh, uh, at the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky here in Louisville. You can go to uh, institute.bsk uh, and, and find out information about the Institute and uh, because there, there are lots of resources that will help give context to some of the issues that we're going to uh, explore in this conference. And then the second sort of more to tell, I would say, is to find a partnership, uh, find a partner, someone in your community you can connect with, uh, a grassroots organization, someone who is on the front lines doing some of this work, and just learn what they are doing. Uh, because if you know that may be an opportunity for you to partnership, that may mean volunteering your time, that may be supporting that organization financially, that may be introducing leaders from that organization uh, to, to your network of influencers uh, so that we can 
build the kind of partnerships because how do you create change? We do this together. Uh, so if there's an organization already doing the work, let's amplify and magnify the impact of those organizations uh, and find ways to connect. And so I'm just excited about uh, Louisville was exposed before the entire world uh, with the Breonna Taylor situation and all the protests. It's one of the, the most segregated cities uh, in the United States. But there are organizations and people, I mean, you got an HBCU, a Baptist seminary, and, and the Center for Interfaith Relations partnering with other educational institutions and leaders across various religions uh, to, to try to bring real change to our community. And I would just encourage you to try to do uh, that exact same thing where you are. Well, Dr. Brogdon just slipped into preaching, didn't he? <laughs> I, I, amen. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, well, Sarah Riggs-Reed, Dr. Lewis Brogdon, thank you so much for joining us for Good Faith Weekly. You can find out more about the Festival of Faiths at festivaloffaiths.org, and you can sign up or sign up uh, to come. We'd love to have see you there at the uh, conference. Uh, Reverend Starlet Thomas and myself will be there in Louisville. Also, there's streaming options, so... Take a look at it. It's a great, great uh, conference that's uh, going to be held next week, so still time to sign up for it. Sarah, Dr. Brogdon, thank you so much. It's been a pure joy. It has. It's been a pleasure. Well, to our audience, we want to thank you for joining us once again here at Good Faith Weekly. And until next week, keep living good faith. <laughs>